Hello, and you are listening to Eco-Justice Radio from the KPFK Los Angeles studio. A project of SoCal 350 Climate Action, our show presents environmental and climate stories from a social justice frame featuring voices not necessarily heard on traditional, mainstream, or even public media outlets. I am your host, Jessica Aldridge from Adventures in Waste, and you are listening to part four of a special seven-part series called The Plastic Plague, connecting the dots between extraction, inequity, and pollution. In today's fourth installment, we break down throwaway society, economics of inequity, and plastic consumption. Today's guest speakers are Shibu Nair, India Coordinator for Gaia Asia Pacific, Global Alliance for Incinerator Alternatives, and Michael Doshi, Director of Partnership for Agalita Marine Research and Education. Shibu Nair is an environmental activist from South India with 20 years of experience in environmental education, conservation, movements, policy, and advocacy campaigns. He is a former Sati Fellow of Association of India's Development and Bay Area Chapter and Zero Waste Fellow of Gaia an ecology center in Berkeley, California. Michael Doshi is Agalita's Director of Partnerships, spearheading strategic partnership collaborations, engaging like-minded organizations working on innovative solutions to participate in educating youth through Agalita's leadership programs. Doshi travels the world conducting waste investigations to experience where our plastic ends up in the environment and how it impacts humans. Over the past three episodes, we have taken a deep dive into the extraction, refinement, and human health impacts of plastic. We started this plastic plague series at the oily, methane-producing beginnings, highlighting the social inequity and pollution issues. We then followed the plastic pipeline through its use and questionable effects on consumers. Be sure to subscribe to Ecojustice Radio to keep up with the series. On today's episode, part four of our seven-part Plastic Plague series, we will investigate the economics and inequity of plastic consumption once it is thrown away. So yeah, it feels good to recycle. It feels like we've done our part to make sure an item no longer of use may one day be, well, used again. When we toss a plastic item into recycling, it will make its way to a sorting facility where it's separated into categories based on value and then sold to market domestically or overseas. But does it truly get recycled? And what is the burden of other countries taking our waste? Sadly, most plastic is not recycled. And I'm not speaking about the bottles and yogurt cups, but the mass amounts of various packaging that yields very little value. Currently, more than 300 million tons of new plastic is produced annually, and less than 10% is recycled. 40% of the plastic produced is for packaging. And in the United States, containers and packaging make up 30% of the total waste generation. Now, this includes everything from what's recycled, incinerated, and landfilled. In February 2018, the Chinese National Sword came into effect and banned the import into China of 24 types of waste material. It set a hard-to-meet standard for contamination levels. This restrictive contamination rate is 
0.5% on most materials. It's nearly impossible to meet when collecting and separating what is called municipal solid waste. That's our residential and our business waste, even with the best technology. The action from the Chinese National Sword rolled into a declaration called China Blue Skies 2050, which sets a goal of reducing greenhouse gas emissions, cleaning up their recycling industry and processing more of their own domestic recyclables versus importation of material. That all sounds great. And as a direct result, the global community, though, lost their main export source of recyclables and waste diversion. Prior to the National Sword, China was a recycling destination for over 40% of the United States plastic, paper, and other commodities. Recycling facilities and export opportunities, well, then opened up in other countries. But with that came the same issues of contamination, excess waste, and a dumping ground for the consequences of a throwaway society. Thank you for tuning in to part four of the plastic plague, throwaway society, economics and inequity of plastic consumption. At the time of this recording, our guests and our crew are conducting this interview from our homes due to COVID-19 pandemic. That being the case, please bear with us as you may hear some feedback. We are not in the studio and we are practicing physical distancing. It is my honor to welcome to the show our special guest joining us via phone, Shibu Nair, India Coordinator for Gaia Asia Pacific, and Michael Doshi, Director of Partnerships for Agalita Marine Research and Education. Welcome you both to EcoJustice Radio. Before we follow the journey of all this thrown away products, and the impacts to foreign countries. I want to hear about both of your journeys and the organizations for which you work. Shibu, what is Global Alliance for our Incinerator Alternatives? And what is your role with the organization as the India coordinator? Uh, <clears throat> thank you, Jessica and Ecojusis uh, KPSLA for uh, giving me an opportunity to this program. And uh, hello, uh, Michael Doshier, and uh, happy to meet you here. Uh, uh, your organization and the work is an inspiration to me uh, since I met uh, Captain Charles Moore in uh, San Francisco during a conference. And uh, Thank you so friend, much, Shibu. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's great to be here with you, yeah. too. I appreciate that. Yeah, thank you. And hello, uh, my friends in Los Angeles, uh, Berkeley, San Jose, uh, and San Francisco. Uh, okay, uh, Gaia is one of the largest network of organizations working in the field of zero waste. I am part of the Gaia Asia-Pacific team and is engaged in facilitating the network partner organizations across India. My role is to provide technical and strategical inputs, facilitate consultations for members, assist members in project planning and monitoring. Apart from this, I am directly involved in a policy advocacy campaigns on zero waste in Kerala, which is my state where I live, uh, through helping cities to build their zero waste systems. I do offer technical support for Gaia uh, South Asia members. They are the, the organizations outside India uh, in organics management, too. And what inspired you to become involved in tackling the waste-related issues? Oh, uh, okay. I love to go to forest and uh, started with the environmental education campaign way back in 1991 as a, when I was a student. So I started this kind of activities uh, associated with WWF in Kerala and become a part of uh, Tunnel. Uh, Tunnel is one of the oldest environmental organizations in Kerala, and I worked with them for 
till what you call till 2018 i was with kanal uh so there i was exposed to community movements to conserve ecosystems and movements against toxics and incineration so that landed me into the world of zero waste i did my zero waste fellowship in berkeley hosted by gaya and ecology center uh, in berkeley so i met association for india's development and ngo uh, who have a chapter in bay area and they supported me a long six years with sathi fellowship actually that helped me uh move around uh, the country and the work with communities and organizations to help uh, design zero waste systems and to uh, campaign for zero waste and campaigns against plastic pollution and incineration so uh, california is a turning point in my life which helped me to focus deep into zero waste and doshi you are the director of partnerships for agalida marine research and education is agalida why are they significant in the plastic plague fight Yeah, absolutely. So, majority of people view plastic pollution as being a litter issue or something that people put in a trash can, trash can blows over and then it ends up as is litter accidentally. Well, as discussed in previous episodes, you really do know that plastic pollution begins once fossil fuels leave the wellhead and they continue even after we throw something away. So even if you properly put something in a recycling bin to make it go away, majority of our recycling here in the US is exported to to foreign countries. And to give you a quick example of what that looks like when you put something in your bin here in the US your waste hauler comes and they pick it up they take it to a material recovery facility where all of your recyclables are separated into different categories or resin codes or material types and then those are sold to different places where there's going to be a buyer plastics recycling has to do with economics it's not just something that's meant to save the world so once you put something away or in a recycling bin it's going to go to the buyer who's offering the highest dollar for that whether that's domestic or overseas and you currently live in Los Angeles California we are the home to the largest urban oil field we have one of the dirtiest ports in the United States uh we have California um the largest oil refinery in California is here that all these being said is there evidence that fossil fuels are being refined into plastic in Los Angeles California Yeah so down in Long Beach for example which is South Los Angeles uh, county we have a lot of pellet producers so uh, pre-production plastic resin pellets those are all of the small pieces of plastic that are melted down to make our consumer goods so majority of all plastics that any of these any of our listeners have used majority of them have started out as these resin pellets and there are a lot of resin uh resin pellet producers down in Long Beach we actually call them nurdles that's the that's the term we use is uh, the slang term is nurdles and there's a lot of nurdle producers down in Long Beach and we have evidence of this through nurdle spills um that uh end up ultimately uh in the ocean and then and then on our beaches as they wash up we sometimes find upwards of over 1000 nurdles in a square meter of sand in on the Long Beach peninsula and we do we have Elgalita has done research before in trying to locate where these pellets are produced and years ago there was an extensive research uh uh report that was put together highlighting where a lot of these spills were happening. 
But isn't it hard to identify what business this is actually coming from because they don't have to report it? It, yeah, it really is. And that's one thing that uh, our executive director has been pushing for for a while is it's hard for us to track where these pellet producers are. So it's hard for us, even as activists, to regulate if they're spilling or not because they don't actually have to check any box on their business license form to say that they're producing these these pellets. So I've been told that the number one export from the port of Long Beach is are these resin pellets, these nurdles. And we, even from when we did this research report years ago, these manufacturers have already shifted locations. They can easily just close, close their doors, move to another facility. So it's hard for us to know where they actually are because they don't need to list it on their business license form. That's unfortunate. Sounds like a new investigation is due. Shibu, Describe the waste management environment that's happening in India and specifically where are you working and res- residing? You know, what kind of waste are you seeing? Where is it coming from? In, in India, unlike uh, the U- U.S. or the uh, Western countries, uh, the waste is uh, primarily dominated by organic materials like the biodegradable materials, which accounts for more than, like it varies from uh, 60% to, in some places, up to 80% is organic material. This, it is food waste. It is vegetables or fish, things like that. And we have, we have very uh, less. Uh, like if you compare comparatively, the non-biodegradable fraction of waste is less uh, compared to any uh, Western or uh, the U.S. economies. Uh, by weight, uh, the plastics account for five uh, percent of total waste generated in India. And uh, if you look at the Indian uh, scenario of waste management, though there was a kind of a initiative from Government of India under Swachh Bharat uh, mission uh, to bring systems in place for managing waste, still huge quantity of waste is uh, unmanaged. Uh, I think almost uh, maybe uh, 50% of uh, waste generated in India is not managed properly. Although there are uh, systems for collection uh, for waste man- waste uh, in urban, urban areas, especially in cities, but uh, uh, most of the rural areas are left untouched. So this is one issue in India with uh, waste management. And even in uh, cities where they have better collection, transportation mechanisms, finally these wastes are being dumped in some uh, common place. So it moves from one uh, bin to other, like uh, what uh, Doshi uh, was mentioning about uh, how this uh, waste, the plastics are moving from bins to traders, things like that. So this moves from bin to one place and from there it, it, it ends up in uh, uh, in places where underprivileged people live. So uh, that is a general practice in uh, uh, in India regarding uh, waste management. And like India being a place of one of the largest network of informal sector, uh, most of the high value plastics are picked up for recycling. And plastics, not, not just, just plastics, but uh, even paper, metal, everything. Are, so there is a mechanism, it's, it's an info, in informal sector, there is a mechanism which actually recovers all valuable recyclable materials from the waste stream. So that actually helps uh, waste management in Indian scenario. But the low-value small-format plastics or the no-value materials, uh, like packaging materials or multi-layer plastics or single-use plastic, etc., left over as litter industries. So India, uh, it is estimated that India generates about 26,000 tons of plastic waste. Uh, India generates about 26,000 tons of plastic waste on a daily basis. 
If you are just tuning in, you are listening to Eco Justice Radio on KPFK Los Angeles. We are here with Shibu Nair, India Coordinator for Gaia, which is Global Alliance for Incinerator Alternatives, Asia Pacific, and Michael Doshi, Director of Partnerships for Agalita Marine Research and Education, discussing Throwaway Society, Economics and Inequity of Plastic Consumption, which is part four of our seven-part series on the plastic plague. Shubi, you were just discussing uh, the amount of plastic that you're seeing in India. And that plastic, as you said, is not directly coming from within India, but it has to be coming from outside of India. How is there a way to track how much in, uh, waste India is receiving and where it is being imported from? Uh, see, that's uh, very interesting in uh, Indian uh, economic uh, scenario where like uh, we have uh, plastic manufacturers, the, the base raw material producers, and uh, 80% of that uh, pro- the plastic, the raw materials are controlled by a single company called Reliance, a huge uh, petrochemical giant in India. At the same time, till 2019, India used to get imported plastic waste uh, from mostly from Europe and U.S., and that quantity is almost the same. It's 120,000 metric tons. Half of the plastics uh, are like produced in India, and uh, half of the plastics are imported as plastic waste material for recycling to India. And uh, this is mostly uh, managed in uh, play, uh, like uh, states uh, like Maharashtra, Uttar Pradesh, Delhi, uh, Gujarat, and Tamil Nadu. And then that waste, when it arrives, it gets picked through by individuals that are, are uh, called waste pickers. Historically, what has been the role of the waste pickers with the management of waste in India? And later, we're, we're going to dive into the current issues, given what happened with China National Sword. Uh, yeah, I think uh, like China uh, declared their uh, national sword in 2019. Uh, like uh, 2018, 2018, and India uh, did the same. India banned import of plastic waste uh, just after China. And the plastic waste imported, though it is the origin uh, is from US or Europe, if you look at the origin of the containers, it is from Pakistan, Bangladesh, and Sri Lanka. So that means there is a kind of an entry port trade exists in this flow of plastic waste materials to India. And this actually directly goes to the recyclers and where it is waste pickers as well as the waste workers are engaged in sorting, uh, cleaning, and uh, or maybe disassembling uh, plastics into different uh, categories so that it can be recycled. So this is the scenario. But uh, the general waste pickers in the state, they have access only to the waste generated in India. But the imported waste is managed in uh, what you call uh, uh, in larger industrial areas where these uh, uh, crude recycling facilities are operating. And these recycling facilities, they're they're processing the stuff into plastic pellets or uh, another product that can be used, correct? And what are the working conditions in these facilities? Uh, see, actually, if you look at uh, the Indian uh, plastic waste recycling uh, industry, it actually uh, formed their own uh, kind of an ecosystem uh, where like uh, there are uh, traders uh, outside the uh, industrial zone where they aggregate all the plastic materials and ensure continuous flow to these small and medium scale recycling facilities. Like uh, the word recycling is very fascinating and uh, I 
uh, often see people are uh, like uh, boasting about okay we have a recycling system in our c- city but recycling is not that uh, a kind of a, a beautiful uh, thing when it comes to countries like india where uh, you can you imagine about a 1000 square feet uh, shack or maybe a temporary tent uh, or a kind of a shed with uh, uh, used uh, metal sheets uh, with no uh, what you call uh, no water facility no restrooms nothing it's a kind of a junkyard and where uh, you can see people working on the floor uh most of these uh, uh uh the uh the 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 facilities they are in uh, remote areas outside the cities or they are in the any industrial areas uh where there is no much public attention because people see it as a kind of a waste management activity and nobody want to have it in their backyard so uh these industries are in places where there are less attention of public as well as government and they keep their profile low so that they can evade licensing licensing in terms of uh, pollution control basically these are crude technologies where they sort clean and then shred the plastic and then melt it they heat it and then melt it and extrude it into pellets uh, and these pellets are then transferred to the next uh, industrial unit where they may be making recycled plastic products uh, for household mostly it is household uh, uh util uh, utensils like uh, uh, pots or even uh, buckets or other containers and with low, low quality so this is a kind of a we can imagine about a kind of a many companies together in one place where they get all this plastic waste into one place and it is heated and the entire area is filled with uh, smoke dust dirt and toxics from this uh, leftover the, the slides from the uh, melted plastic and you can see mostly it is mostly women and children who are employed in this scenario because they offer cheap cheapest labor so the recycling of plastic is primarily dependent upon cheap labor because that makes it viable to compete with virgin plastic industry or virgin plastics which is getting cheaper day by day uh, just because these petrochemical companies are finding or they are fracking newer uh, newer and newer uh, areas for um uh, coming up with uh, virgin plastic so this is the general scenario where people are working like slaves or are slaves they are working for peanuts compromising their health compromising their social life and like if you look at uh, if you feel proud about recycle logo in your product you just imagine or you just uh, think about these people and realize that it is their sweat it is their tears and it is their blood that make recycling viable in this world it ends up that that's not accepted where does the rejected plastic end up in india uh yeah and if you look at uh, the entire recycling process uh, see most of the part is being outsourced in, in the sense like uh, the the waste pickers they aggregate materials in their like in the premises of uh, their living space like uh, most of these people are living in slums or in uh, places in the suburban area so they aggregate all these materials and in the primary skimming like when they do the first level of sorting whatever left over whatever they cannot take it to the recycling facility will be dumped in their neighborhood most of them are like, ending up in farmlands like the paddy fields or even uh, agriculture lands or into the water bodies nearby 
or into the uh, street corners it ends up there and for the industries uh, they aggregate all these uh, plastics and after like melting doing during the every melting process uh, you get uh, most of the sludge so the sludge uh, because plastic is actually not that is a real the plastic is not recycled it is downside so every uh, process every heating and extrusion process uh, at the end there will be some sludge and that sludge is toxics uh, because uh, all that uh, additives in plastics get concentrated into the sludge and the sludge is either uh, dumped and outside the cities or outside the, their industrial areas or they just burn it uh, to get rid of that uh, quantity to reduce the volume of the uh, or to reduce the volume of the uh, waste sludge or the waste materials or the materials that cannot be recycled they just burn it so they most of the time they burn it in the evenings so that uh, it won't uh, uh, catch the attention of the public and the, you can imagine about that smoke it is petroleum product it is petroleum and you burn it not just the plastic the plastics are not uh, uh, like it, the a plastic product is not just plastic it also got additives so all these additives including heavy metals and other uh, chemicals it is burnt and that fills the entire uh, neighborhood and though we think that okay this is uh, confined to one smaller region in india but if you look at the toxics the toxics no no borders they travel they travel everywhere across the globe wow shivu as doshi mentioned earlier we we have issues um with plastic waste from the petro plants as as well as you have there that from the discarded material also ends up into our bodies of water fishermen in india are spending time cleaning their nets of plastic can you describe for us the situation and what's happening to this waste after they collect it uh the i am i am not uh, sure about uh, the runoff from the uh, petrochemical companies I, i i think that i assume that uh, sure there will be some runoff from the petrochemical companies who make that uh, uh, virgin plastics india being uh, the land with a lot of water bodies and connect like i said uh uh what you call subcontinent uh, covered with water all over so uh, eventually it ends up uh, into the uh, ocean uh our major concern is the plastic litter that reaches our ocean and uh, during last two cyclones like uh, oki uh, and uh, prior to that uh, just after that oki we found that indian coast line was completely dumped with plastics so the sea gave back all the plastics which has gone into the ocean uh and that was actually a kind of a shocking so uh, just after the oki uh, and the floods our shoreline were like especially in mumbai goa or in kerala we found loads of plastic litter where like uh, the the waves brought back all these plastics from the ocean and uh, for last uh, one decade all over uh, indian coast the fishermen were complaining about uh, getting their fishing nets clogged with plastic waste so uh, i was just looking into this issue for a smaller uh, fishing town in my area that is uh, kollam that's a smaller district in kerala and there is one uh, small harbor where uh, like uh, around 500 troll boats are operating on a daily basis uh, for fishing and around 5000 fishermen are engaged in uh, fishing operations 
And I found that they are spending almost one hour on a day to declog their fishing nets and they collect all the plastics. Earlier, they used to declog the nets and throw the plastics back into the ocean. But they found that it is actually adding to their work. So they started collecting it and bringing it back to the uh, harbor. And in the harbor, government has created a, a facility that is for pre-processing plastics, like cleaning, sorting, and shedding into smaller pieces. So they hand it over to these people. See, the plastic litter, the, the, the fishermen are not responsible for this plastic litter in the ocean. It is from the urban centers in India where just because their waste management systems are not efficient, it is reaching to the, like a part of it is coming to the ocean. But it is the fishermen who pays for it because they are not getting any money for this kind of collection of plastics from the ocean and bringing it back to the coast. They are spending their time. It is 5,000 human hours on a daily basis is spent on bringing back plastics. It is actually, it should be paid by the brand, the owners or the consumers. But unfortunately, it is paid by the poor fishing community. So that is the reality. And what happens to the plastics uh, they bring back to the ground? It is sent for shredding and uh, there is a government policy. They think that it's a solution for plastic waste that you make roads with plastic. And every other day you get to hear or get to see news articles in, in the media saying that, okay, uh, we have uh, built or we have uh, constructed uh, this kilometer long roads with plastics. Actually, it is not a solution. It is a compromise. You are shedding the plastics into finer particles and uh, just hiding it in the roads. And eventually, it becomes uh, minute particles like uh, microplastics and it also comes back. Just because the plastics litter is a large uh, chunk, it is large pieces, so that the, the fisher, fishing community can bring it back. But when you make it into smaller particles, that doesn't come back in the nets, but that will come back in the food. And, and that back is into the water as well. Yeah. So that goes to the water and that comes back into your food. So this is what happens with the, the plastic in the ocean. Exactly. Doshi, um, you've traveled around and, and seen what's happening globally, things, exact things that are happening in India, and you have uh, countries where there's a more influx of consumption and new items being consumed that were not originally consumed just even a few years ago in those countries uh, due to a growing global market. What are some of those products that you are seeing and that are then thus becoming waste because they've never had to, the community's never had to deal with them previously. And now they have items like sachets and other things like that. Yeah, yeah. So that's a really great point, Jessica. And I, I always like to reference how, how Captain Charles Moore addresses this. He says, plastic is the lubricant for globalization, which has allowed these multinational brands to be able to sell products on a global scale. So when I was spending time in, in Southeast Asia, in both the Philippines and in East Java, Indonesia, what you're seeing is an influx of different types of products for these multinational brands to try to own the developing marketplace. 
so the the poorer sectors that are starting to come into the middle class of being able to offer them those single-use, multi-layered sachet portion amounts instead of offering them a full bottle of shampoo, for example. They could buy something for for one rupee that will last them a day to meet their daily income. Sorry to interrupt, but these little sachets are just like little packets versus like buying a whole bottle. Now you can buy this little packet, which is called a sachet. Yeah, and it's it's generally multi layers where it will be plastic with aluminum, uh, and then maybe another layer of pl- layer of plastic or paper. So they're not de- designed to fit into any type of current recycling system. Or even if they did, they'd be very hard to recycle based on the materials that they're they're the low quality of materials that they're that are used to create them. So with the brands that are being sold around the world, we're, we're seeing a growing amount of products that are being offered by these multinational brands to these developing nations. And in addition to selling the, these new types of products in these, in, in these markets, not only are they getting an influx of plastic packaging that's being produced by their local consumers, we're also exporting our plastic waste problem onto their onto their land and onto their waterways. So it's it's a compounded issue for them. And we we tend in the Western world to put a blame on countries in Southeast Asia for having some of the top polluting rivers uh, that are contributing to plastic pollution in the ocean, when in reality, we're really exporting a lot of our plastic waste from the U.S. to those countries. And that includes some of the same brands that are sold um, both domestically and then internationally as well. If you are just tuning in, you are listening to Ecojustice Radio on KPFK Los Angeles. We are here with Shibu Nair, India Coordinator for Gaia, Global Alliance for Incinerator Alternatives, Asia Pacific, and Michael Doshi, Director of Partnerships for Agalita Marine Research and Education, discussing Throwaway Society, Economics and Inequity of Plastic Consumption, which is part four of our seven-part series on the plastic plague. Shivu, for decades, the waste pickers have built their livelihood on picking through waste and selling it to an informal economy. Now you have all these regulations and contamination restrictions that started with uh, uh, China's national sword, and now it's being implemented by other countries such as India, so they're not getting in as much uh, contamination. But how is that affecting the waste pickers? Are they finding that they don't have as much income or as much work as they've had previously? If you look at uh, the, the waste pickers in India, they are not just dependent upon plastics, but unfortunately, uh, like they, earlier they used to depend upon paper, cardboard, and metal because that, that, that was the major part of packaging industry before. But all these materials were replaced by plastic, so they, they are compelled to scavenge on plastics on the street or plastic litter on the street so that they can bring it back to the recycling system and get some uh, income for them. And after this uh, 2019 regulations by Government of India on on regulations on banning the waste import and especially plastic waste uh, import, that is uh, impacting the people, especially the waste workers who are working in the recycling facilities, not the waste pickers on the street, but the people who are working in the factories or in the uh, smaller uh, recycling units. So they are finding it very difficult. Uh, Many of these plastic recycling facilities are actually getting closed down 
for two reasons. One, there is not much uh, supply of uh, plastic material because they are not getting free and easy plastic uh, materials into their facilities. Two, uh, they cannot even compete with the virgin plastic industry because virgin plastics are getting cheaper and cheaper on a daily basis. And for the workers, especially like in India, we have around five, five million uh, people are working in the sector of waste, waste picking and uh, waste workers. And uh, for them, it is not that easy to, like the government of India can come up with a policy or a regulation on March 1st. But these people cannot shift their livelihood from one point to other in a uh, day's time. It will take long time and during this transition period, they are going to suffer. They are going to compromise on their health. They are going to compromise on, like, they are from impoverished communities mostly. And other, the other issue is that uh, most of the cities have come up with a door-to-door collection. as a paid collection uh, service of, uh, like, uh, for the residents to give away with their waste. And this actually kept all these waste pickers out, like, uh, it actually denied uh, the waste pickers' right to access the discarded materials. Now, all these materials are collected either by the private companies or uh, by the people who are engaged for this and who, who have a, a salary from it. And they are not at all interested in collecting or segregating uh, these materials back into recycling system, but they just dump it into either into the incineration or they just put it in the uh, landfill. So this is what happens. And actually, day by day, the opportunity to access waste materials for recovery is getting reduced for these uh, these speakers and uh, it is making their lives very uh, struggling in India. And then there's also this concept of banning items too, like banning plastic bags, which are a blight and and are do have a negative environmental effect. But then there's sort of this pushback as well because. For some people, the plastic bags are a convenience option, but for low-income individuals in India, it it can be it can be much more than convenience. It's 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 uh, an item of interest for them, correct? Yeah, this is actually uh, an interesting. Interestingly, this is one of the conflict uh, conflicting areas where the environmental organizations, the organizations working for conservation or on ecology, or on climate, uh, and uh, the associations or the trade unions of waste pickers uh, uh, when they face face each other on this matter. Uh, When the uh, environmental organization want the government to ban single-use plastics because of the contamination and uh, uh, the wasting of resources, uh, the the waste picker organizations or their associations argue that when you take out all the plastic materials from the stream, this is the only source of income for these people, and uh, they are deprived of their livelihood. So that that is the place where uh, still we we, we haven't uh, solved that issue. One. Secondly, uh, there is another argument. If you look at the uh, the rural poor uh, sector or the rural India, uh, poverty is there, and uh, for people they cannot afford to buy many things with their limited uh, resources. So they have to uh, go for reuse of materials. Most of this, uh, like uh, we call a pet bottle as a single-use product, but a pet bottle, like a Pepsi or Coke bottle, is not a single-use product for a rural person. Uh, They reuse it at a minimum uh, one year as a water bottle or as an oil can or uh, as a container for keep storing things at home. Even a a beautiful uh, printed carry bag, uh, may be used for used as travel bags. Most of the migrant workers uh, 
they go to their work with their dress or their food everything packed in a carry bag and that carry bag is carry bags are reused again and again so this is actually supporting in a way it is supporting the rural poor because they cannot afford a, a proper bag and they cannot afford a proper water bottle so they have to uh, this kind of product so there is the there is an argument uh, in the people who are working uh, on the poverty sector they said that like if you ban all these plastics plastics in a way it provides cheaper options for the poorer communities but the real question is what made these communities poorer it is not that it is not the fault of the people it is the fault of our development projects that has to be addressed that is a larger framework where we all have to work together the, all the environmental organizations and the trade unions have to work together on this larger framework where how these people became displaced or they displaced from their livelihoods they they displaced from the livelihoods which got some dignity of labor and this displacement conversation i i want to talk about this people don't just shoot the waste pickers there's this relation to our larger socioeconomic and climate change issues that have resulted in this displacement and the loss of livelihood what have the impacts of climate change been and where in lies that responsibility and because there's been this huge impact on farmers and then they get displaced and then they come and they have to work in the cities for low in- with low income jobs shibu what's your your opinion on this see uh, if you look at uh, the indian economy uh, the the spine of indian economy is agriculture and if you look at the employment it is the largest sector which employs people there are farmers there are farm workers and there are agri agri laborers and uh, all these people are dependent upon agriculture and the other issue is that the agriculture product the food products there is a regulation of price in the open market like it is the regulation is by government government do not allow the price to store up they want to control uh, regulate the price of the uh, materials in the pro- uh, in the market so these people are caught in between the climate and the market economic system so they have to work harder and harder to earn their meal for a day uh, at the same time uh, they cannot sell their products at a higher cost so this is the situation one secondly if you look at the indian subcontinent in the indian subcontinent the climate is determined by the winds uh, from indian ocean and the arabian sea for the in the last uh, one decade we are uh, we are observing that there is a uh, surface temperature difference uh, in uh, arabian sea and indian ocean starting from the australian coast that is actually disrupting the the rain pattern the monsoon pattern in india either it uh, ends up as uh, uh, cyclones or heavy rains or f- uh, flash floods or uh, it goes the other way the, to the extreme drought in last two decades india has seen that kind of a unstable conditions in agriculture owing to the fact of climate change so the climate change is impacting the indian agriculture and that made their lives uh, horrible and the farm laborers the, uh, the the farm workers they have to go for they, they are leaving that sector and they are going to the cities in search of other uh, economic opportunities and these poor people from uh, villages when they reach the cities they have no other option they have to they are compelled to get into menial jobs like cleaning or sweeping or waste picking so from 
like a robust agri-based economy, they are thrown into a waste-based economy where they have to compromise for everything. So climate change surely has that kind of an impact on people who have no reserves or they, they don't have title to land, they don't have even other livelihood opportunities, and they are not even skilled in that sense because they are not skilled in the modern way uh, for the, for an urban scenario. They are skilled in the rural scenario, but they are when these skilled people from rural scenario comes to the urban scenario, they are considered as unskilled and they, are, uh, they have to offer their labor for cheaper uh, wages. Great opportunity to talk about solution-based systems. Both of you work in this area. Doshi, I know in your experience, you've worked with organizations that have probably a very big heart and they want to create opportunities for income by having people clean up beaches and sort through waste and make items to, to sell as uh, out of plastic trash to, as a means to raise money. This is what is seen as part of a green economy, but by continuing to perpetuate a living through waste collection and not uplifting the community for how they got there, how, how does this fall short of building a zero-waste community based in... The first thing I like to ask whenever I hear of these type of business models based on creating products from ocean plastics, for example, or creating jobs for people from collecting ocean-bound plastics uh, that are within 60-mile radius of the ocean or from uh, plastic that's collected from the beaches. The first question I like to ask is, what is the exit plan for these informal waste collectors that are getting the plastic for you? And what are the economic systems and jobs being created for them to maintain their livelihood after the community they lived in they live in has transformed to a zero waste model because if this isn't being planned or discussed then a sustainable system for longevity is not actually being created for them and you might hear of major clothing brands that are creating pla- uh, creating their items their their plastic items out of ocean plastic. And some of that plastic might be very responsibly sourced based on business models that are set up through third-party companies that are acting as a, as a sustainable supply chain for the plastics. A good example for listeners to check out is Boreo. They, they have an operation down in Chile where they are collecting, they employ communities of, of fishers to collect uh, fishing nets once they've each reached the end of their life cycle before they can be discarded in the ocean, becoming plastic pollution. So they have a very transparent, um, uh, transparent chain of where that that plastic is coming from to be used in new products. But there's other brands that are getting plastic from third-party companies that aren't as transparent with where their ocean plastics coming from or how much the workers are paid or if they are using child labor to collect these plastics or if it's volunteers that are collecting these plastics. So you have to, I, I encourage consumers and people listening to this when they are purchasing something that says made from recycled ocean plastic or plastic collected from the environment to really dig deeper into what the truth behind that is than just taking it as face value because for decades now and generations, we've been taking marketing and advertising at its face value. And that's one of the major things that has got us into this, this global crisis we're in. Shibu, what do solutions look like to you from 
from an actual green economy to brands taking uh, responsibility for the products to recycling? What, what do solutions look like in India? As well as to, to anybody who wants to participate and say, what can I do better? I like that question uh, by Doshi about that. Uh, it is, isn't it the time to uh, think about the exit plan? So when it comes to plastics, people think that uh, plastic recycling is a solution or anything like uh, burning an incinerator or dumping or even landfilling. But the problem is that even the, the chemical recycling, people think that it is a solution, but actually people are mistaken uh, for compromises as solutions. It's all compromises. So uh, when you look at the real solutions, you have to redesign. You have to help these people for this transition. It is happening. It is happening around the world. For example, if you look at uh, Pune or in Bangalore, the waste pickers are formally integrated uh, at least in, in some parts of the city, integrated to the waste management systems where they, they, they are uh, signing contracts with the cities uh, for uh, in a, uh, resource recovery systems or operating resource recovery uh, centers in the city. And that actually brings them more revenue. And because if you look at the plastic recycling process, it is a subsidized process. The subsidy is the lives. They are compromising their lives as subsidy to make uh, waste recycling uh, viable. So this is the time where the governments and the companies have to come up with, close that gap. There is a viability gap. So that viability gap has to be funded by the companies or by the city governments or by the state governments so that the transition of the waste pickers from scavenging to environment managers. It is happening in Kerala where now the waste workers comes to your house not to pick the waste, but they are there to help. They are coming as a technician, like an electrician or a kind of a plumber. They come to your house and help you manage your compost. They facilitate collection of segregated waste. So that way it is becoming a kind of a green job and that brings in uh, 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 like more economic stability and that Im uh, improves their, uh, what you call the quality of life as well as that brings dignity of labor. So in that way, it is happening around the world. Like in, uh, in many cities, uh, there are initiatives to uh, shift these people into more ecologically and economically viable uh, activities. But uh, the, the existing recycling process is not enough uh, when you look at or uh, when you speak about a solution for plastic problems. Doshi, what do you say when someone comes to you and they say, what can I do to help to curb the issues that result from a throwaway society? Yeah, I like to take a bigger picture approach. The general response you'd get from a nonprofit employee here in the U.S. would be cut back on your single-use plastics. Like, stop using straws, stop using water bottles, use functional reusable items to replace the single-use items. That's what you'll, you'll, you'll generally hear. I like to ask people to dig deeper. I like to ask people to seek the truth behind the issues that we're, we're really dealing with. I encourage people to, to reach out to have deeper conversations with, with people in the movement, um, such as Shibu, such as people from the Break Free from Plastic movement. I encourage people to watch the upcoming film called The Story of Plastic. And when they see the story of plastic, they'll see the full complexities of the issues we're dealing with to go way beyond just the single-use plastic such as straws and utensils and water bottles and coffee cups. 
I tell people, once you seek that truth, once you've become more educated, look into how can you get involved in the political process in your local community to help solve these issues? How can you move beyond just the switch out culture of moving from one disposable item to another item? How can you get more involved in creating that reusable culture amongst businesses on a localized level in your area? How can you then encourage multinational brands to move to those reusable systems or not just encourage them, but then push politicians to require them to have more of that extended producer responsibility where they're not only producing the products we're consuming, but they're taking ownership over the packaging that those products we're consuming are delivered in. And they're flipping the bill for that versus us as consumers and taxpayers having to flip the bill for that. So I like to, to ask people to dig deeper. I ask them to think that if they see a solution that seems too good to be true, it most likely is, as there is no silver bullet solution to the global plastic pollution crisis. No, there isn't. And we only have less than 30 seconds left here. Can you both, uh, we'll start with you, Doshi, tell us where people can get more information on your organization. The best place is online at algalita.org. You can find more information on www.no-burn.org. That is the website of Gaia and breakfreefromplastic.org. Thank you to our guest today, Shubu Nair, India Coordinator for Gaia, Global Alliance for Incinerator Alternatives, Asia Pacific, and Michael Doshi, Director of Partnerships for Agalina Marine Research Education. Thank you to our listeners for joining us, and a special thank you to Story of Stuff. This has been Part 4, Throwaway Society, Economics and Inequity of Plastic Consumption, of our seven-part series on the plastic plague. We look forward to bringing you, our listeners, the series and hearing what you think Start a dialogue. Visit us on social media at Ecojustice Radio, SoCal350, and Adventures in Waste, my nonprofit. And if you like what you heard and you want others to be informed, subscribe to the podcast and share the episodes. You have been listening to Ecojustice Radio, recorded at KPFK Los Angeles, a project of SoCal 350. The show can be found on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and at ecojusticeradio.org. Created by Mark and J.P. Morris, executive producer Jack I, Plastic Plague Series producer Georgia Tignoli, engineer Blake Lamkin, interview hosted by Jessica Aldridge from Adventures in Waste, and original music by Javier Cadre. And until next time, remember, the power is yours.